Chapter 16. Aftermaths. It had taken Urza nearly a month to return to the wreckage of Krug, first walking out of the desert with the wounded Lieutenant Sharaman, then regrouping the embattled Yodian forces in the Sword Marches and organizing an orderly retreat south. The Sword Marches fell behind them, and most of northern Yodia as well, but there was nothing left there to fight for, and nothing to sustain an army. The Falaji harried their flanks, but left them alone. Urza's forces got within two days' flight of Krug, which was still in enemy territory. The prince consort, a de facto ruler in the continued absence of the queen, took a trio of ornithopters to the wreckage. Mishra, now known to the Yodians as the Butcher of Krug, had abandoned the city, and his dragon engines left little standing. The massive walls themselves had been left untouched, though their mighty gates had been worked from their hinges and splintered. Everything within the walls had been burned, and that which resisted burning had been crushed beneath the dragon engine's treads. A gray rain of ashes and dust fell on the city for three days after the raising. There was little looting afterward, because there was little to loot. All that was left were the walls and a slope of gray rubble leading down to the Mardon River, and beyond the walls, a scattering of lean-tos belonging to the refugees, too stubborn or stupid to move elsewhere. Three ornithopters alighted on the low hillock where the palace would have been. Urza and Charmon climbed from their machines, but the third pilot remained with his craft, ready to take off at the first sign of trouble. There was nothing to do except watch, and nothing to see except the ash-covered rubble. Urza stood in one spot, then moved a few feet over, then moved to a third location. Occasionally, he picked up a bit of rock and let a handful of soot sift through his fingers. It seemed to Charmon that the ruler was trying to imagine what building stood there and where he would have been within that building. There was a great pile of rubble that had been burned, blasted, and then cleared. At first, Charmon thought it had been a great court, but he soon realized that it was the site of Urza's ornery and it had been scrapped down to bedrock. Urza stood in the dead center of the cleared circle and knelt down, putting his hands over his eyes. There was not even any rubble left for him to touch. People began to drift in from the gates. Charaman tensed for a moment, but he realized these were little more than Yodian refugees from the camps outside. Leaving Urza to his revelry, Charaman went to meet them. Charaman had been in Krug a handful of times, the first when he received his flight training. It had been an amazing city to a boy from the eastern provinces, a boy who had been given a ride in an ornithopter when Urza flew to Corlinda. Now that was a lifetime ago, and mighty Krug was a dead ruin. Charmon went and talked to the refugees, then returned to where Urza stood, a young boy in tow. Sire, he said gently. And I always accuse my brother of not finishing anything, said Urza softly. Then his eyes focused, and he turned to Charmon, once more, the chief artificer. What? There are people here, said Charmon. They want to know what to do. Do? said Urza, his voice sounding strangled. What can they do? Tell them to head south, or east, or west, or wherever they think they could find safety. Tell them that there is nothing for them here. Perhaps it would be better if they heard it from you, said Sharaman. Urza looked at Sharaman. And say what? That I'm sorry I failed them? That I'm sorry that I wasn't here for them? That I'm sorry that my brother fooled me? That I'm sorry that my wife and apprentice and my work are all gone? Urza's voice rose as he spoke, and Sharaman wondered if the chief artificer would weep. Instead, the older man shook his head and say, No, I have failed them. They should go find someone who has not failed them and follow him. For the first time, he noticed the youth. And this is... He says he's one of your students, said Sharaman. Urza appeared at the youth. Perhaps. Your name is... Rendell? Sandwell, sire, said the youth. Rendell is my younger brother. He's the one Master Tanos chose to fly the Ornithopter away. Urza looked at Sharaman 
and there was new light in his eyes. Ornithopter? Then someone escaped with an ornithopter. Slowly, Sanwell told the story, which he heard from another student after the battle. His younger brother had taken mostly important papers and designs and flew them east. No, no one else went with him. Yes, with orders to go to Argive if need be to escape the Falaji. No, he didn't know what happened to Master Tanos and the Queen. Sanwell's Avenger had been overwhelmed by a number of desert fighters. It had taken out a number of them, but there were too many of them. When he was done, Urza rose, and there was a new fire in his eyes. So, my brother, he said, you didn't finish this either. Sharaman! Yes, sire. I want you to take our remaining forces south. Regroup what you can and fortify the ports. Yes, sire. And what of you? I'm going to find the knowledge that Tano saved for me. Randall! Sanwell, sire. Are there any others from the school here? Sanwell looked around at the desolation. No, sire. Then you'll come with me, said Urza sharply. We have to find out where your brother went with my work and begin again. And this time, said the chief artificer among the wreckage of Krug, this time I will not stay my hand or feel mercy for you, brother. This time there will be a reckoning. I swear it. And as if in response to his words, a cold wind blew up from the river, scattering ashes around his feet. The caverns of Koilos had visitors, non-Argivian visitors. They were from a monastery along the northern shores of the continent, a theocracy that celebrated the power and the majesty of the Thran, and more importantly, their devices. They claimed a large territory, but they had been relatively reclusive. They found that other cultures did not share their respect for the machine's workings, that others sought to barter them, like the Falaji, or to make pale shadows of the Thran creations, like the Argivians. So they remained a quiet people, venturing out only rarely beyond their borders. Until the dreams came, they began over a year ago. First one brother, then another, then a third, all consumed by the same vision. A world of machines far beyond the abilities of the Thran. Living engines of steel and cable. Of indestructible hearts pumping vital oils through the body. Steel leaves and sawtooth grasses. A world that rained oil and bloomed with mechanism. In short, paradise. And the dreams enraptured the dreamers with its siren call urging them to leave their lands, to come to the center of the dream, and to work miracles there at the center. Under the urgings of the dream, the Brotherhood of Gix responded. Two dozen of the most trusted brothers, those who had served the cause of the machine most devoutly, left their homes and headed south. They avoided the Malpiri tribesmen, who regularly raided their lands, but a few fell to the dangers of the desert itself, exposure, heat, and bandits. Only a dozen arrived at Koilos a year later, and they were an emaciated lot, dressed in windblown rags, and possessing a wide-eyed fanatical expression. As they traveled, the dreams grew stronger in them. The dreams showed them to the canyon that would lead them to their goal and the cavern that they would find there. They pulled out ancient stones that glowed of their own light and journeyed within the cave, stepping around the wreckage of ancient machines that had been tested and found insufficient in the eyes of their machine god. At last, they stood before the great machine. They took their gathered light stones and placed them within the machine as they had been instructed by their dreams and passed their hands over the mysterious book of glyphs. The fact that they could not read the glyphs bothered them not. The only thing that mattered was the dream, and the dream told them what to do. The monks of the Brotherhood of Gix were not surprised when the lights of the cavern flickered to life around them, nor when the machines themselves began to sing, communing with each other, and singing praises to their god. Delight flickered on the faces of the Gixians, knowing that their dreams were about to become reality. A great disc formed in the middle of the air, like an oil puddle that had been turned on its side. It shimmered with the rainbow of colors not found on this earth, for these were rather the colors of dreams. 
the pool widened to the height and width of a tall man, and something stepped through it. It was tall and humanoid. It seemed to be wearing an armor of black metallic snakes, but to the monk's delight, they recognized that it was the skin of the being, a skin of metal and coils. Its face was skeleton white, and it sprouted more tendrils from its head, great blood-colored serpents. As one, the monks fell to their knees in worship. The godly being, servant of the machine god, stood before its glowing portal. It sniffed the air, as if experiencing it for the first time. It stretched its sinewy cable muscles and turned its head from side to side, testing the extent of its body. One of the monks, the leader among the survivors, slowly rose and spoke. Welcome, most holy creation. What may we call you, that we may better serve you? The machine being looked at each of them, and there was a soft mental caress as its mind touched theirs. It had been the one to send the dreams, they realized. It had been the one to call them to this place. The machine being's lips whirred as they formed themselves into a smile. Gix, it said at last, in a voice only Misha and Ashan had heard before. You may call me Gix.